that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Alright, thanks Alec. I argued last time that faith is the only way for open to us to participate in ultimate reality. That's the idea that faith is the substance or faith is the reality is actually so the substance of things escapes us is another way of saying it apart from faith we cannot apprehend he says two things we cannot apprehend the nature of creation that is that the world some would say is a reference to creation ex nihilo we cannot approach the reality of God's existence apart from faith And if we ask, why is this the case, uh, then the answer is here in chapter 11. And in each of the instances given, faith opens up a a means of rescue or life. It gives us life uh, in the face of the reality of death. And so if one depended on a reality that falls short of faith, you know, if we would make this the unfaith chapter, uh, it would be one in which uh, one depended on visible reality. So faith is about that which cannot be seen. It would be a reality given over to drowning, to murder, to martyrdom, to childlessness. Childlessness. In other words, to sum up, death is what offers itself for those who fall short of faith. Death is in some way... Uh, the alternative to faith or or a reified understanding of death and in pagan religion this is precisely what you get that um, you know literally the god mot is death or in Japan the idea of there is a kind of reification of death but in a sense this is no longer a religious possibility especially in the west uh, because of Christianity uh, but that is a religious systematic you know, reification of death and so what I'm going to talk about a little bit is that this chapter I think addresses the problem directly that, and we can understand why it is that faith then is the resolution to the human predicament it's always the same predicament. Uh, and it takes us then, faith takes us to the heart of how it is that we can defeat sin. If we understand what faith is, then we can understand uh, how it overcomes sin. And so sin as, is an orientation which accepts the reality of, the, of death as the final end of man. Uh, and faith directly confronts this uh, as we gather from this chapter, then the way in which we're going to define faith, the way we've been talking about it throughout Hebrews, that faith is always a resurrection faith. And he ends on that point. What is the faith of Abraham? He believed that he could receive Isaac back from the dead. And so Abraham stands at the center of this faith chapter. And actually, in 12.1, Christ is the apex or the culmination of the faith chapter. So the, the enemy which faith has in its sight is the reification of death or the reification of nothingness, the absolutizing of death.
And I think we can just say this is what pagan religion does, what idolatry does. You know, Paul tells us the idol is nothing, but it, it isn't nothing that's been reified. It's been absolutized. In the modern period, we bow down not to idols, but do we still have the same problem uh, that the idolater had? And what I want to suggest is it's always the same problem. We may not have a systematic reification of nothing, but in our own society, I think we that we would say it's human will or it's human subjectivity, and ultimately we live in a kind of nihilistic culture. So, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche put it that it's the will to power. Pure will is kind of the realm, unfortunately, that I think theology got us here. You know, even you can say this with, you know, why is it that we live in a universe or in a world in the West in which we no longer manufacture religions? When we were in Japan, there were continually new religions arising. We had a new religion arise while we were there. They put sardine poison on the train. And it's a continual process. I think that's not unusual. That's the way that the world functioned prior to Christianity. That there was always a new God coming along or a new Messiah. But partly what has happened in the West is that, and, and in, as a direct result of Christianity, that indeed the principalities and powers have been subjected and uh, that in some way Christ has, that, that paganism is no longer a real possibility for us. I'm going to suggest this is... Are in the West new religious movements aren't? No, I don't mean that. There's more religious movements popping up now than ever. Yeah, there is continual religion, but it's, it, I would just say that it's characterized as a different sort of religion. So you could talk about you know there there are continual new religions, but Wiccan and all the various New Age religions. I would say that, in a sense, they're always in the shadow of a kind of Christian understanding. So uh, it's easier. This is David Bentley Hart, and I have to say that my my reading today is kind of in uh, having read his article. He says it's easier to convince a man that is enthralled to demons and offer him freedom to offer him freedom than to convince him that he is a slave to himself and prisoner to his own will. And it is this God, I think, against whom faith is directed. That is, it's almost easier to overcome a pagan religion to come in to overcome the kind of uh, empowering of the will uh, that we have in the West. In a sense, though, this if, I think this goes right back to the beginning, you know, when Adam fell. You know, when God seeks Adam, where are you? He said, I was naked, so I hid. And we were reading the Jean Vanier book, uh, and Stanley Howes Vanier quotes this. He says, in our group, we went around and we asked, you know, what, what, what's your problem? You know, what, and they all, he said, mentioned fear. Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of not succeeding, uh, fear of deterioration, fear of death. You know, Adam says, I was afraid, I was naked, I was hiding. And so I think that the, our situation has not changed. We still fear the same things. And we, you know, that our religions are, are really aimed at in some way overcoming these fears. Let me quote 
David Bentley Hart here. When a Gentile convert stood in the baptistry on Easter's Eve and before descending naked into the waters, turned to the west to renounce the devil and the devil's ministers, he was rejecting and in fact reviling the gods in bondage to whom he had languished all his life. And when he turned to the east to confess Christ, he was entrusting himself to the invisible hero who had plundered hell of its captives, overthrown death, subdued the powers of the air, and been raised the Lord of history. Life for the early church was spiritual warfare, and no baptized Christian could doubt how great a transformation of the self and the world it was to consent to serve no other God than him who Christ revealed. That, and then the comparison to a modern man or woman, and Hart says, to the degree that we are modern, we believe in nothing. He says, this is not to say that we do not believe in anything. I mean that we hold an unshakable, if often unconscious, faith in the nothing, or in nothingness as such. It is this in which we place our trust, upon which we venture our souls, and onto which we project the values by which we measure the meaningfulness of our lives. Or to phrase the matter more simply and starkly, our religion is one of very comfortable nihilism. He spends a long time getting to this conclusion. I'm not going to take you on that entire journey. But just to say that Christ has subdued the world of idols and paganism. And in a sense, we're left with the vacuum that creates in the absence of Christ. Uh, Christianity has narrowed the field of belief, and it's narrowed it, I think, to a stark choice, and that's what is presented to us in certain places, Like, and it's the orientation to death or a resurrection faith. And so in 12.1, which is actually talking about Christ, who is the shepherd of our faith, you know, who's been raised from the dead, is the one in whom we should actually read this entire chapter in light of. Abraham is certainly the prototype of faith. Um, and, of course, we've talked about, you know, that Abraham's hardship is not just, oh, he, he has all these obstacles that are thrown in his way. But in fact, the, the things, you know, the childlessness, the homelessness, without family, without country, those are not just obstacles to faith, but in a sense, that's the situation in which faith arises. Because recognizing that he is unable to propagate his name, he turns to God, and, and the picture in Romans and here in Hebrews is that the situation is that he faced death. He was good as good as dead. And uh, on the, the, the you know William Fraser talk, talks about this. He says the bondage of sin is then this orientation, this acceptance, uh, you know, a, a kind of death denial. Actually, is the way he puts it. So he says there. This is William Fraser. An exact, there is an exact equation in the text between Abraham's belief and his readiness to accept death. The one is realized in and through the other. 
This explains Yahweh's final commendation of the patriarch in terms of his willingness to take his son's life, and thereby his own, and thereby his own. In other words, the way that Abraham would perpetuate his name is in and through his son to to sacrifice Isaac in a sense is self-sacrifice. So the the point. Fraser says, is not that Abraham accepted death and thereby demonstrated his faith. His death acceptance was his faith. Resurrection faith, as the writer of Hebrews calls it. That is that he was able to accept the, you know, the reality of his own situation, the sacrifice of Isaac, because of his, he, as the writer says here, that he knew that he would receive him back from the dead and he says it's as if metaphorically he did uh, and, uh, and we've talked you know that Abraham's entire faith is set over and against the background of Babel these are the people of unfaith theirs is one and you know you could go through and compare Babel and Abraham that the tower is visible the tower is draws the people together they're not going to spread out the, the tower is inanimate the tower you know you could just say all the things about that tower that are going to become later characteristic we in the scripture we don't have idolatry up to this point and idolatry is going to be rampant um, and then everything about Babel stands over and against this so if you lay out chapter 11 or yeah 11, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They're going to storm the heavens in and through their own ingenuity, in and through their own willpower, in and through their own capacities. Otherwise, we shall be scattered all over the earth. The whole point of it is they're going to unify, uh, have cohesiveness then in and through this tower. Then you lay Genesis 12, uh, before that, or beside that, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you. So the point is, I'm going to do for you what the Babylites would imagine they can do for themselves. Uh, but I'm just giving you a promise, and that's what the writer's focusing on here throughout chapter 11 with all of the examples, you know, that Noah builds an ark, that uh, he can't see the flood coming, and yet on the basis of faith. So what is faith? It's the belief in God's word, and it's trusting in God's word. Uh, I will make your name great. That it, God is going to give him, you know, offspring as great as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. Um so we've talked that if there is a sacrifice or sacrificial system in the New Testament, it's really going back to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, Hart says the same thing. He says the only sacrificial model in the New Testament is that of the atonement sacrificing of Israel which belongs to no cosmic cycle of net necessity. What you get in pagan sacrifices, you have to feed the gods, you have to do something to get something in return. But what you have in the offering of Isaac and in the offering of the sacrifices in the temple 
as we've talked about it, it's a drawing nigh to God. It's a, a coming into God's glory. It's a dedication of a life given over to God. Hart says it this way, Israel God, Israel's God requires nothing. He creates, elects, and sanctifies without need. And so the atonement offering can in no way contribute to any sort of economy. It is instead a penitent approach to a God who gives life freely and who not only does not uh, profit from the holocaust of the particular, but who in fact fulfills the sacrifice simply by giving his gift again. The gift of life, the gift of, you know, uh, the, the offspring, the gift, the resurrection uh, gift. This giving again is itself, in fact, a kind of sacrificial motif in Hebrew scripture, achieving its powerful, most powerful early expressing expression in the story of Abraham and Isaac, the Akedah. Uh And he, Hart references is Ezekiel's, you know, the dry bones rising again. Um, what is pictured I'm going to bring it to a close here but what's pictured throughout here is the covenant community is a community you know like with Abraham like with Moses that is continually moving outwards from a place of security a place in which we would secure ourselves as with Babel as with Egypt into the land of danger you know the wilderness or the you know Abraham sent to a land he does not know. Noah's building of the ark was a going into the void in which the ark was the place of, you know, in the midst of the world, it was the place of security. Abraham went into a land that he did not possess in the right, you know, in the New Testament, we know that the only part of that land he possessed was his own tomb. And uh, he spent his life there. On this border, uh, Moses, uh, you know, went. He left his place of royal position. We think he did not, you know, count himself as, you know, in, in this it's it's very messianic. He did not count himself a son of Pharaoh, but went out and counted or identified himself with his own people. So throughout, we could say that it's the margin, it's the wilderness, it's the place, the willingness to, to, go, to go into death, to relinquish our own capacities. And it's precisely then that we discover God's dwelling. Um, and so in chapter 12, he's going to bring this to conclusion. In the place of their suffering, and in chapter 13, that we're to go with Jesus outside the camp. And that's precisely uh, where we find God. Let me conclude here that we could talk about two sacrificial systems then. Uh, the chapter 11 is about people who have died and on, you know, martyrs, really. These are the martyrs of the faith. Um, this is hard again. He says, the great Indo-European mythos from which Western culture sprang was chiefly one of sacrifice. It understood the cosmos as a closed system, a finite totality, within which gods and mortals alike occupied places determined by fate. 
And this totality was a necessity and economy, a cycle of creation and destruction oscillating between order and chaos, form and indeterminacy, a great circle of feeding, preserving life through a system of transactions with death. The whole religion was aimed at maintaining an equilibrium, not being given over to chaos. Um, that uh, in some way we've got to balance you know, the, the chaos and the order, and we do that through a sacral practice or a sacrificial practice uh, to keep at bay the world's, you know, the, the violence. And of course what we're describing in chapter 11 is a lot of violence and a lot of people sacrificed. But this is not the religion of Israel. This is the religion that Israel and Christianity is resisting. That there is one system of sacrifice that will sacrifice the other, that will sacrifice Jacob and Joseph and you know, go through. And then there is you know, the sacrifice that would put Christ on the cross. But then there are those who would like Christ, take up their cross, like the brothers of Joe, you know, like Joseph would lay down his life for his brothers. That, uh, and that's the, I think, the two ideas. Hart even ties this into philosophy. He says, from the time of the pre-Socratics, all the great speculative and moral systems of the pagan world were confined to this totality. He calls it a cosmos. He references John here. When John talks about a cosmos, it's this closed system. Rarely, he said, did any of them catch even a glimpse of what might lie beyond such a world, and none could conceive of reality except as a kind of strife between order and disorder, within which a sacrificial economy held all forces in tension. He goes on and he describes that even you know Plato and Aristotle and Neoplatonism that they all then uh, describe a similar system that is inseparable from decay and death, from dealing and death. In this sense, Greek philosophical thought is a kind of summation of pagan uh, religion in that it is always dealing directly in death. I think the difference in the modern period is that we trade directly in death. Uh, that we don't have a religious sensibility of sacrifice or in some way dealing with the gods or feeding the gods. Even where people try to recreate religion or a a kind of religious myth, it really doesn't, I think in the light of Christianity, this is René Girard's point, it can no no longer function for us as a true myth. Uh, Do we still have sacrificial system? Well, in America alone, more than 40 million babies have been aborted since the Supreme Court invented the right that allows for abortion. And there are many for whom this is viewed, this is hard, not even as a tragic necessity, but as a triumph of moral truth. Why are they aborted? Again, it's the idea of human will. This is hard. When the Carthaginians were prevailed upon to cease sacrificing their babies, the place vacated by Baal reminded them that they should seek the divine above themselves. We offer up our babies to my freedom of choice, to me. 
No society's moral vision has ever been more degenerate than that. In this time marked by an absence of faith in, uh, in Christ, in a sense we're left uh, with a kind of desert of the real, uh, in which we lack uh, piety, peace, nobility. Uh, there is a kind of barren spiritual you know, field in which we operate. It's a terrible thing. But in a sense, I think this is where Christianity has brought us. That there are these stark choices that were presented. And, and even to present it, to talk about it in this way, maybe that's not the way it plays out in most people's lives. We all kind of play out in a little bit of nihilism and a little bit of faith, you know, so that we kind of have Christian nihilists. Uh, but with Christ came judgment into the world. Uh, you know, you can go through... Uh, that uh, let me skip here now is the judgment of the world now will the prince of this world be cast down I have overcome the world he is above all principality and power and might and dominion Ephesians Uh, he has triumphed over them he had led captivity captive so we can largely absorb scriptures talk of the defeat of the devil the angels of the nations and of the powers of the air, and yet fail to recognize how radically the Gospels reinterpreted everything in light of Easter. Uh, And so what we have then is how we die. This is my last slide here. This is uh, from Justin Martyr. The more we are persecuted, the more do others in ever-increasing numbers embrace the faith and become worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Just as when one cups off the fruit-bearing branches of the vine, it grows again, and other blossoming and fruitful branches spring forth. So it is with us Christians. Uh, By the end of the century, uh, we understand by martyrdom, Tertullian writes that Uh, It is the rationale for the change uh, uh, we have never been able to forget. Your tortures accomplish nothing, Tertullian says, though each is more refined than the last. And of course that's what we're picturing in chapter 11, the tortures that these martyrs went through, both Jew and Christian. Um, We become more numerous every time we are hewn down by by you. The blood of Christians is C. That is, the blood of Christians is the the death acceptance of faith, resurrection faith, and I think that's the, the picture here. So that we have two economies. We have an economy of faith, and then we have you know the orientation, a kind of death acceptance. And then we have a kind of unfaith, and uh, in that uh, we are left with death denial. All right. Any questions, comments? Let's read uh, verse from verse 7. Sharon, you want to start with verse 7? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark. Am I reading that? Yes. Okay. Constructed an ark for the saving of his, of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. 
So probably if we went through this, we could begin to get the characteristics that he he was told there is going to be a flood. You know, he's inland. He's not even by the coast, and yet he trusts what God says. It says in holy fear he built an ark. Uh, and so this is, you know, Peter's picture that the same flood that lifted the ark and he floated free is the flood that destroyed the world. Uh, he became the heir of the righteousness. And righteousness, even back with Abel, is connected with faith. Uh, with, you know, if you talk about Cain and Abel, the, the difference between them is Abel did what was righteous. Abel did what was good. And so, too, each of these portraits of faith is someone who acted out this faith. That is, that they do something. Uh, this is why Martin Luther didn't like Hebrews. Uh, because faith is always connected with an activity, with a, uh, a duty, with a, uh, you know, uh, building an ark in this sense. Jamie, you want it? You, no Bible. Okay. Uh, Faith, can you read verse 8? Do just 8 or do you want to... Oh, read some more. Okay. Read 9. Read down, down to 10. Okay. By faith, Abraham was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So, uh, the the city, what is the city? Well, I assume it's the New Jerusalem that he was looking for. And the New Jerusalem is pictured, you know, as the, the city in, in Revelation. Um... So, uh, the way that Frazier talks about Abraham is that if you had, you know, in the early picture of the, there is no, in the early scriptures, there is no life after death, no notion of life after death. And so how did you propagate your name? Well, through your family, through your country, through your, through your offspring. And so he receives an inheritance be, but he relinquishes his natural inheritance. And maybe that's the move you have to make in each of these cases. You relinquish one thing in faith to receive the other thing. You give up Babel to receive the promise. You relinquish the security of the city to receive the, the city with, with, uh, whose foundations and architect is God. And then, Dylan, you want to read 11? I should have not made eye contact. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was unable to become a father because he considered himself him faithful and who had made the promise. Go ahead with 12. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand on the seashore. 
So Paul will compare the creation ex nihilo and the faith of Abraham because Abraham received his son out of nothing, you know, from death. And resurrection faith then is of the same order, that it recognizes the human condition. If we do not have faith, we are bound by that condition. We cannot see beyond a closed universe, a universe of cause and effect. But uh, So he was as good as dead, but God gave him a child, and that's the nature of, of the faith that it's rewarded here. And uh, where are we at? Uh, Rachel, you want to read? Verse 13, 14. Yeah. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Go ahead with 14. I read 14. Oh, that was, okay. Yeah. I wasn't following. You want me to read 15? Yeah, read 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So, the the faith chapter is full of people who didn't receive what was promised to them. In other words, they received something, but they didn't receive uh, what their faith pointed to. That Isaac then is representative of he's a type of Christ. There's a sense that the the flood of Noah is only going, you know, this is the picture in Peter, that it's only going to be truly resolved in Christ. Uh, that, uh, that the fulfillment of all of the promises are going to be in Christ. So they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from afar. Uh, but what they recognized is we're aliens and strangers in this world. Okay, uh, and then let's read 16 and 17. Dave, you are. Did, oh, Alec, you want to read there? Sure. 16 and 17? Yeah. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Should I go on? Yeah, go ahead and finish it. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Uh, so this is kind of the culmination of the faith of Abraham. Uh, again, not a sacrifice on the order of a pagan sacrifice, but the sacrifice of faith and a life dedicated to God. Uh, this is, I think, we understand this, we understand this entire chapter ultimately only through the sacrifice.